Happy Easter, everybody. Resurrection Sunday, one of my favorite days of the year, and certainly a day that has become, for me, more than just another holiday. And so this is the first holiday of the year that that just has something extra. And I hope you found that something extra. I know that there are many of you who have. Easter for you is a central part of your hope and faith in life, and you put great value in today. But I know that there are some of you today that have not found that, and that for you, Easter is just kind of another one of those ritual days uh, that adds something to life, but that's about it. So like, you know, we get up and it's New Year's Eve, and um, maybe we're off work, maybe not, and we got that party to go to with those friends, and it's fun, right? And we do the thing where we watch the big glass ball drop, and then everybody goes home and goes to bed. Wake up the next day, watch some football. You know, we have our ritual that we go through, but in the end, it's really just another day, right? I mean, there's some psychological impact of a new year, but all in all, it's just another day. Then we come in February to like Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day is one of those highlights when you're dating, but when you're married, and it's not that it's not valuable, it's just that every day is Valentine's Day when you're married, right? So it's just... (laughs) And then St. Patrick's Day, but nobody at Polaris celebrates St. Patrick's Day. So, um, but I know that for some of us, Easter is one of those days where you wake up and, you know, maybe get up a little earlier and you go to church. Maybe you put on a tie or just get a little bit extra dressed up. I know, you know, I got the Dockers on today and it's either Easter or Christmas Eve when the Dockers are on. Weddings and funerals are for suits. Easter and Christmas are for Dockers. Um, and maybe you have some ham with the family. But in the end, Easter is just another day. Well, if you're here today and you have have found great meaning in Easter, you're going to get plenty of experience today, I hope, at our our service. But what I want to do is spend some time this morning talking to those of you who maybe haven't found that with Easter. Maybe Easter's just another day for you, another ritualistic holiday. And first of all, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. And I love spending time with that group of people, and I love talking with you, and, and I'm thrilled that you're here. But I want to spend some time really talking through this idea, because, because I hope that you leave today believing that there might be more to this Easter thing than just another ritualistic holiday. So I want to start in a book in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels. That means that it's one of the biographies of Jesus written by his close friends or people that were right there uh, when all this happened. And I'm going to start in John chapter 19. I want to read to you really brief the last words of Jesus before he died. Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So when you think about the Son of God here on the earth, God in the flesh, probably pretty careful about his last words. They're probably pretty significant. And and the words he chose were simply, it is finished. Now this is one Greek word, and the New Testament was written in a language called Koine Greek. And the Greek word is tetelestai. Tetelestai. And those that 
read John's gospel originally would have been very familiar with that Greek word because that's the word that they would have seen on every receipt or promissory note that they've ever encountered. Because the word tetelestai carries with it this idea of paid in full. So as Jesus hung there shortly before he died, seconds before he died, his last phrase that he spoke, paid in full. So let's talk for a minute about what it was that was paid. Why was that the phrase that Jesus chose and what in the world does that have to do with your life today? Well, aside from my wedding ring, I'm going for double points. Aside from my wedding ring, the number one material possession that I own is my iPad. I do everything with my iPad. I do email. I read. I surf the web. I research for sermons. I usually use it for my notes for sermons. I schedule everything. I mean, my iPad is my kind of like my life on a computer. And so when I bought it last October, it's a fairly, not only is it valuable in terms of what it does for me, but also it's valuable monetarily. It's like, you know, 600 bucks. And I know it's also a lot of fun. So I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, two little boys that love my iPad. But I thought I had, and I thought, you know what, if those boys were to accidentally break this, this is a debt too great for them to pay, right? I mean, it takes a lot of lemonade sales to come up with 600 bucks. So I bought the replacement plan, right? I told the guy, listen, I want to be able to throw this over my house and just bring it in and get a new one. So I want that plan. Now, it just so happens that a few weeks ago, one of my two boys who remain nameless may have been playing with my iPad, and I turned it on, and there was a hairline crack that went the whole way through. And so I talked with the boy who might have been playing with that, And after a little while, he said he might have accidentally closed it in the garage door. (laughs) Which, how you accidentally close something in a garage door is beyond me. But I was able to say, listen, Spencer, (laughs) I, um, I knew this was a possibility. And I knew that there's no way you could possibly pay for this. So, number one, hands off my iPad. Number two, I have this piece of paper here. And all I have to do is take this piece of paper in, and they're going to give me a new one because I prepaid for it. So, when Jesus says paid in full, he's looking at a debt that we simply could not pay. Here's, the, here's, here's what happens in Scripture. So, we do these things. We make these bad moral choices these sins. And they separate us from God, and we live in this guilt and shame. And either we're distanced from God because of that, or we spend our lives trying to cover up this shame with good works. God doesn't want us doing either of those. He doesn't want us living with this sense of guilt and shame. He doesn't want us trying to be good enough to please him. So the Bible tells us that he sent his son to pay the price for those things that we could not pay for because no matter how hard we try, you will never be good enough to go to heaven. 
We will never do enough good things to cover over our sins. It's not possible. The Bible says that. The Bible says we don't have to because God loves us and he sent his son to pay the whole price in advance. I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 says this, but, when, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we still had the broken iPad in our hands, while we still had the sin on our life and no chance to do anything about it, Jesus died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how are we justified? By his blood. How much more shall we be saved and made whole from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, you know, we had this debt we couldn't pay, we were reconciled, that means made right with God, to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So the idea is this. We had a debt we couldn't pay. Jesus came and he paid that price in full for us. So now we are saved by faith in that sacrifice, not by some payment that we have to produce. That is what Jesus did for us. That is the central message of this Easter weekend. And that is the message that brings hope to us no matter where we're at in life. Now, Jesus wanted us to keep this on our mind because he knows human beings. And he knows that we have a tendency to forget this or to run from this and try to earn our way or be shamed out of a relationship with God. And so he comes up with this ritual. He says, I want you to regularly, he's talking with his disciples on the last night of his life, and he says, I want you to take bread and eat it. And remember the body that I'm giving for you, for your forgiveness. And I want you to take juice, fruit of the vine, and I want you to drink it regularly, And remember the blood that I'm about to shed for the forgiveness of your sins, the price that I'm about to pay on your behalf. I'm going to pay your death penalty for you, and I want you to remember that. He says it's a new covenant or promise paid for in his blood. So as we try to find meaning in Easter beyond just a holiday, I want to turn to the testimony, to the real-life story of a guy who wrote much of Scripture. His name was Paul. And Paul had, prior to meeting Jesus, he met Jesus after Jesus had risen from the dead. Prior to that, though, Paul had achieved every milestone that you look for for success in religion. Now, religion being like the things we do to make ourselves right with God that we try versus actually knowing Jesus. And Paul had achieved all those other things. Then he meets Jesus and and finds a new way of life. And for him... This new way of life, which is, a fo- which is found in Christ alone, far surpasses any other experience he had ever had. So I'm going to read you uh, from, I'm going to read to you from Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 7 here. It says, But whatever were gains to me, everything I had ever sought after before, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, garbage. Remember that word, 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him, have, uh, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I've done nothing to earn this, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, the first piece here that I really want us to explore is this idea of knowing Christ. Paul is very confident that we can actually know Jesus. And notice that he doesn't say knowing about him. Because, see, that's religion. Religion is the idea of learning about God, and you have this sort of around-the-way knowledge of God versus a relationship, an experiential relationship with God. But Paul says we can know Jesus just like we know another human, far different than knowing about someone. So I've often heard people say, you know, in the last century, who more than anyone would you love to have dinner with? What, what historical figure would you love to have dinner with? Who would you want to get to know? And for me, it's a, it's a very quick um, answer, Elliot Ness. I'm fascinated by Elliot Ness. Now, Elliot Ness, the guy who marched into Chicago, didn't even carry a gun and took down the organized crime in Chicago. He's the guy who caught Al Capone. And, of course, I own the Untouchables movie and have some biographies about Elliot Ness and had a very brief conversation with my wife about maybe naming our second boy Elliot Ness Poindexter, but it was a very brief conversation you see, when your last name is Poindexter, you have to be very intentional about what that first name is going to be. Um, but anyway, I'm fascinated by Elliot Ness, but you know what? I, I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. And I'm never going to know him personally. But what Paul says, this whole church thing, this whole Bible thing, needs to be about more than just knowing about God or knowing about Jesus. We can know him personally. And maybe some of you have an experience in knowing about Jesus, but I want to challenge you to find the relationship and don't stop until you actually know him. Now there's a next thing in this passage that I find fascinating. Paul says, I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. So, rel- in, relative to knowing Jesus and how great it is to know Jesus, all the other things that I've tried to find in life, I consider them garbage. And let me tell you something about that Greek word. That Greek word is skubala. Say skubala. Say it again louder. Skubala. Now act like you're mad and say skubala. Okay, I just made you cuss in Greek. And that is no joke. Scholars believe that, okay, so in Roman culture, there was probably a chariot somewhere that had a bumper sticker on it that read, Scubula happens, okay? That's the word. And if I were to really translate that word up here on stage, I would, there'd probably be an emergency elders meeting after the service, um, and I might be out of a job tomorrow. Um, Paul uses that kind of language. Now, remember, these letters that Paul wrote were supposed to be read in church. 
And so Paul writes something scandalous, doesn't he? He wants to really emphasize the fact, listen up, these things that I searched for prior to knowing Jesus are scubala. And everybody got real quiet when that was read in the early church, but everybody knew, man, this is an apostle. Can't say anything about what he wrote. I mean, he decides what's right and wrong, but he means it. Now, let's talk about the kinds of things that he has in mind here. What is it that's so worthless? What is the garbage? He says prior to what we just read, down in verse 4, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the things that they've done, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, circumcision was a Jewish rite of passage. So this is a Jewish society. And Paul's saying, okay, so let's look at the bottom rung. Bottom rung is circumcision. Pretty painful bottom rung, but he had it. Next. The people of Israel, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. What he's saying here is I have the pedigree. I'm preferred stock. I have the bloodline. You can trace my lineage back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. My bloodline has not been corrupted. This was a big deal in Jewish culture. He could trace it back to one of the original tribes of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I know the language and I observe the customs and I know them inside out. And then he says, in regard to law, a Pharisee. That means he was well-skilled, well-educated, knew the Bible inside and out, had a ruling position of authority, would have been wealthy, affluent, influential. He had it all. And in a society that is only religious, like religion was the, the essence of the society, he had achieved everything that there was to achieve in the world of religion. And he said, it's all worthless. It's all scubala compared to knowing Jesus, to having a real, tangible relationship with Jesus. And part of the hope of Easter is this. No matter where we're at in life, no matter what we're pursuing, Jesus is alive and available for a relationship. And when we enter into that relationship, everything else is worthless. And therefore, it doesn't matter how bad things might be. It doesn't matter the things that we think we need that we don't have. It's all garbage compared to what's really available, an eternal relationship with Jesus. And one final piece from this, he says, I also want to know the power of the resurrection. Not know about the power, he wants to know the power of the resurrection. Here's what I think he means. With the resurrection, God proved that no matter how bad life is, no matter what we're going through, no matter how dark the day, Sunday morning came, and now it's best case scenario. And when you walk in friendship with the living God of the universe, he is able to take anything and make it good. But even if he doesn't in this life, what we learn is that our life transcends this life. This life is a fraction. It is a fragment of our existence. It is a vapor, Scripture says. It's a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. But we live on with God. Our relationship starts now. It never ends. And no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, because of the resurrection, because of Easter, our eternal life with God transcends 
the misery of today. And there is always hope in that. And for Paul, that kind of hope, which lasts forever, is available in Christ alone. So I want to talk a little bit more about the resurrection and about the difference that Easter makes. And I'm going to read the account from the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, of the, of the Resurrection Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, uh, shortly after Jesus had risen from the grave. It says, When the Sabbath was over, the day of rest was over, and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. They're basically preparing, embalming his body for its final rest. Uh, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? So they're concerned about the logistics of this, this giant stone in front of this tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So they see an angel. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, now this is a significant deal. When we talk about the difference that Easter really makes, the difference that the resurrection really makes, I want you to focus on that word right there. It says, tell his disciples and Peter. This angel and God are very concerned that Peter knows in a very special way that Jesus is alive and ready to speak with him. Here's why, and here's why this is so significant for your life today. Peter, about 48 hours ago, less than that even, before this moment in Scripture, had done all he could in all his power to deny his affiliation with Jesus. He renounced his faith in Jesus. Now, Peter was very close to Jesus. Jesus went out of his way to spend extra time with Peter, had talked with him about becoming a leader in this movement. And he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He even confessed that. I believe that you are the anointed one, the Son of the living God. Fully put his faith in Jesus, but the pressure was on. Jesus was getting beat up. And they recognized that Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and Peter denied it. He just venomously denied it, cursed, did everything he could to get people to think that he didn't know Jesus. Just flat out, I don't know him, never seen him, I'm not associated with him. Jesus makes direct eye contact with Peter while he's doing this. And Peter is crushed. He gets away and he runs outside the city and bawls like a baby. Now, can you imagine the failure? You're sitting there on Saturday when Jesus is dead. And you know that the last thing you just did for your friend was deny even knowing him. And all the hopes and all the dreams. I mean, you would probably feel like a failure, right? You would probably doubt that you're even okay with God. Because you're not going to get much worse than just doing everything in your being. In a faith-based system, to do everything you can to deny your faith, I mean, that's, that's a big deal, right? But early on that morning, one of the first things that God does is he says, you make sure that Peter knows. 
that Jesus is waiting to speak with him and we're okay. Here's why that matters for you. Some of you live with the horrible burden of something you've done in your past. I have people ask me quite a bit, Alex, I, I had an affair. Am I going to hell? I divorced. Am I going to hell? Whatever that big thing is, and some of you have some pretty big things in your past, that bad night, that bad day, that bad decision, whatever, and you live with that burden, I want you to look here at the hope of the resurrection, the hope of Easter. And maybe Easter can mean something to you because this morning, God showed Peter, I know what you did. I know exactly what you did. And I still love you. That's the message of the resurrection. Then... Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Now, church history agrees that Mary Magdalene almost assuredly lived a life of at least prostitution, So we have this demon-possessed prostitute. Okay, life is going pretty bad when you're a prostitute possessed by multiple demons, right? Like in the context, and I hope someday we have a church filled with demon-possessed prostitutes, and I mean that. I would love to have that kind of people finding the hope of Jesus here at Polaris. But that's, that's, that's on the far end of being far from God, right? And Jesus steps into her life, and he redeems her life. And she's now following him, welcomed into the ministry of Jesus. Now it's Sunday morning, and Jesus has risen from the grave. Who's the first person that he appears to? I can tell you if I were Jesus, I could tell you where I'm headed. Okay, People just beat me, rejected me, spit on me nailed me to a cross and killed me and laughed while they did it. And now I'm alive with all the power in the universe. Where am I headed? I'm headed to those that did it to me and it's a bad day for them. I'm alive and you better have a fresh tunic because... (laughs) But Jesus isn't interested in that. He's not interested in vengeance. He's interested in grace. And of all the people that he could appear to... He goes to the demon-possessed prostitute. I think that brought hope into her life. And so what I want you to know is if you have lived very far from God, some of you here could say, you know what, I waste, I've wasted my life up to this point. No matter who you are, no matter how far you have been from God, the message of Easter, the hope of Easter, is God loves you and God wants a friendship with you. And Jesus showed that by first choosing, choosing Mary Magdalene to appear to. So, Jesus paid it all for you. Paid the whole price. Jesus wants you to know him, not just know about him. Anything else you're pursuing is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Jesus wants you to know the power of the resurrection, God's power to take the bad and make it good. Jesus wants you to begin an eternal life that never ends, that transcends the problem of this world, no matter the one thing you did or the many things that you did. Friendship with Jesus is available to you 
That's the message of Easter, and that's why Easter is so much more than just another holiday. Now, I want to do one more thing. We want to just take a moment and focus on the ministry, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and I just wanted to invite you to just kind of release your mind of the things that you have that you're headed to, or whatever it is, just take in this scripture and this interpretation of scripture and this music and have one more experience with Jesus today. Father, thank you for paying the price. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the life of perfection that you lived and for paying for every single sin, past, present, and future on the cross. Most of all, we praise you for raising from the dead, and now death is meaningless because you have won. In Jesus' name, amen. So come and walk through the life of our Savior with me. Listen to the scripture. And as you listen, think about his life. Think about his ministry, his trial, his sufferings. And ultimately, think about his triumph. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past with me. You know, God has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And if we are supposed to be like Jesus, it's very important for us to understand who he is this son of God, son of man, whose ministry focused on those who were hurting, on the poor, on the sick. He who loved the unlovely and walked our streets, stepping into messy lives of blind men and lepers, those on the fringes of society. When John was in prison and he heard about the things that Jesus had done, He sent some of his disciples to ask him, are you the one to come or should we look for someone else? And Jesus told his disciples, go back to John and tell him what you see. Tell him what you hear. Tell him the blind receive sight. Tell him the lame are walking. That those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised to life and that the good news is preached to the poor but his ministry ended far too soon because the religious leaders were jealous they drug him before the governor and there he stood before the governor and he didn't respond at all Pilate said don't you hear the testimony of those who are accusing you still no response from Jesus It was the custom of the governor during the feast to release a prisoner. And he had a notorious prisoner, Barabbas. So Pilate stepped out on the porch with both men before the crowd. And he said, who shall I release to you? Jesus, who is called the Christ, or Barabbas? And the crowd cried out for Barabbas. Pilate was surprised. Well, what should I do with this man, Jesus, called the Christ? And the crowd began to 
to chant over and over, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate realized that the crowd was getting out of control, he called for a basin of water to be presented to him. And he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And the crowd cried out, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And the governor turned him over to the soldiers. The soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium where they stripped him of his clothes and they put a robe on his shoulders, a staff in his hand, and they wound together a crown of thorns which they shoved on top of his head. And then those soldiers got down on their knees in front of him, crying out, Hail to the King of the Jews, all the while spitting in his face grabbed the staff from his hand and began to beat him on the head, in the face, and on the body over and over and over again. Later, the Apostle Paul would write, and every knee will bow, every knee in heaven, on earth, and and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he called us to have the same attitude as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing like a servant and took on a human form and became obedient all the way to death, even to death on a cross. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, they took him out to the place of the skull and there they crucified him with two other men, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. And oh, the sounds that filled the air that day, sounds of laughter and of jeering, of cursing and of gambling and the tears from women Jesus' own voice crying out above all the others, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook, and the sun itself refused to shine for three hours as all of creation reacted violently to the death of the Son of God. And then it's over. It is finished. He's removed from the cross and he's placed in a tomb, cold and alone. Long before any of this ever happened, the prophets wrote about it. Isaiah wrote, Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so today we can stand and cry out with that crowd, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. You know, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
but to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. So tell us, death, where is your victory? Tell us, death, where is your sting? Because when the perishable has been clothed in the imperishable, and when the mortal has put on immortality, then the saying will be true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, the body of the Lord was not there. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men who were clothed in, in white clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And the women bowed down in fear with their face to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. 